Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. If you go ahead and get your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter number 8. 1 Samuel chapter number 8. We are continuing our study uh, on the life of David, and uh, we are still not going to talk about David yet. Uh, we got about three more weeks, and then we'll start talking about David. But this morning, uh, we're going to look at something else in the life of Israel that led to and impacted David's life. Now, uh, right now, there's a lot of debate uh, in our culture about which generation is the best generation. Uh, there's the greatest generation. I don't think we have anybody here uh, that was born part of the greatest generation. Brother McCormick was uh, but, you know, anybody, I don't think anybody's here in that port. Then we have uh, the silent generation. Who here has been, was born between 1925 and 1945? All right, we got a couple silent generation uh, people here. I think Sue's part of that generation, and she's not very, oh, she's not. Okay, good, because I'm like, she's not silent. Uh, so, so, anyway, uh, she's not here to defend herself. Then there's the baby boomers. Uh, 1946 to 1964. How many of y'all are boomers? All right, several boomers here. Uh, then we have Generation X. This is 1965 to 1980. How many Generation Xers? There you are. There's the good generation right there. Uh, then we got millennials who are, are 1981 to 1999. Any millennials? Yeah, I knew it. Stinking millennials. And then the Generation Z, uh, 2000 to 2012. How many Generation Zers? Yeah. Yeah, way too many Zers in here. Uh, and then, of course, Generation Alpha, and we made them leave uh, because God help us when Alpha's in charge. Amen? Whoo, boy. But anyway, now, Generation X is, is obviously the greatest generation. Uh, it's the best generation there's ever been. Uh, there's a guy I follow on Instagram. Uh, Instagram is TikTok for old people. You know, I don't watch TikTok like the kids. I watch, I watch reels on Instagram like an adult. But there's this guy on Instagram I follow. He's called the Dad Bod Veteran. Anybody seen the Dad Bod Veteran? I love the Dad Bod Veteran. Uh, he's a Generation Xer, and he just does all these little videos about uh, some of the things that are wrong with, you know, the current generation, uh, Generation Y. Like, here, here's a question. Uh, he, some people asked, and they sent him a clip. If you are driving 80 miles an hour, how long will it take you to go 80 miles? Anybody, anybody, anybody know that right off the top of their head? Yeah, an hour, right? They ask a bunch of Generation Yers this, and they're like, four hours? 25 seconds? I don't know. And uh, so he makes fun of them because, and I get it, y'all have new math. We can't understand your new math. Uh, but, you know, he talks about how Generation X is the last feral generation. We were the generation that, you know, we, it's not that we were allowed to play outside. We were made to play outside. My dad would kick us out and lock the door and say, you're playing outside. Um, when I was a kid during summertime, I would wake up early in the morning. I'd have me some, you know, some cereal. And we didn't have the good cereal like y'all have. Uh, you know, we had, like, stuff that would cut your, your teeth, cut your gums just by eating it. And no flavor. If you wanted sugar, you added sugar. But anyway, uh, so we'd eat cereal. And then I'd go to my neighbor's house, and we would get on our bikes, and we would ride off it. We would ride uh, up, up our road, but we'd go into the, into the town, and we, we'd be, you know, 10, 15 miles away riding our bikes, and we didn't get home until dark, and no one cared. We didn't have a cell phone. 
Now, my kids, when they want to ride their bike, we're like, you can ride up and down our street, and I have, I have uh, location permissions on you. I can see where you at at all times. You don't leave this street. You know, if someone comes up and says, how do you, you get home? You, you, know, you don't talk to anybody. But when I was a kid, my mom's like, all right, if you come back, you come back. If not, I got four more. <laughs> Who cares? You know, our generation, and, and you know, we were raised by baby boomers. They were such bad parents. I'm not trying to bash y'all baby boomers. But y'all remember every night at 10 o'clock, there was a, a commercial came on and said, at 10 o'clock, do you know where your kids are? They had to be reminded they had kids. And they, they didn't care about it. They're like, oh, oh, yeah, I forgot I had that kid. Where did he go? I don't know. Uh, put him on a milk jug. We don't care. But, you know, we were, we were made to play outside. Uh, we, we were, you know, we, had to, we drank from the water hose. Yeah. When I rode my bike, and I, I, we would ride it on highways, uh, down, I mean, I remember one time, me and my buddy Alex, we were going down this huge, steep hill uh, in, in Holiday Forest, which is kind of a neighborhood near us, and it's gravel, and he's on, a, he's on a mountain bike, and so he's going real, and I'm on a BMX, just trucking down there, and I hit a rock and just wiped out completely. Never wore a helmet a day in my life on a bike. Never did. Now, obviously, I had a little bit of head, head trauma, uh, but I, I survived. Uh, we, didn't wear, we didn't wear helmets. You know, we are, the, we are the generation. We fully experienced the world without cell phones. If you wanted to make a phone call, you had to be at home or have a quarter. And some of you Generation Yers are like, why do you need a quarter? Because it used to be these things called pay phones. And I haven't seen a payphone in decades. But if you wanted to call somebody, you could get a quarter, stick it in there, dial the number. Or what my parents would tell me to do if I was out, like if I was at the mall and they're like, you need to come up, you call collect. But when they say, who's calling, you don't say Sean. You say, pick me up at the mall. <laughs> they decline it, boom, free phone call. Uh, and so, you know, we, we'd, we'd have to make a phone call. We'd have to be at home or have a, have a, uh, a, a quarter there. We fully experienced the, the world without Internet. You know, when we wanted to look up something and do a report on something, we had to have encyclopedias, huge cases of books that told. And look, they were great, but I think the set I had was like 20 years out of date. So I'm trying to do a report on the Vietnam War, and I don't think it had happened yet by the time they were published. So then you got to go to the library and go to the Dewey Decimal System and pull out those catalog, card catalogs and try to find it that way. Couldn't just Google what happened in the Vietnam War and boom, there's everything you need to know. So we didn't have internet. We didn't have unlimited TV channels. We had three channels, four if the weather was good. And if Reagan was on, you didn't get to watch anything. You had to watch Reagan talk about whatever was going on. Uh, if you were expecting an important phone call, you could not leave the house. If you made plans with someone, and you left your house. You couldn't change them once you left. There's no texting them, hey, running five minutes late. Hey, meet me at Chipotle instead. No, you, you left the house, you were done. You had to go where you had planned to meet. Uh, if you wanted to go on a road trip, you couldn't just tell your phone, how do I get to the beach? How do we? No, no, no. You had to pull out a road atlas. Y'all remember the road atlases? Where you had to map out your whole, we didn't even, now look, we, we experienced all of that, but we also experienced life with cell phones. We were the first ones to enjoy cell phones. My first cell phone was a Nokia brick. The Nokias were great phones. You could, die, you could make phone calls, and that's it. But if you drop that, you know, the iPhones now, if you drop it from six inches, the screen shatters, you need a new one. The Nokia, you could drop it off the Empire State Building, run over with a bulldozer, and it would still work. Now, it only had one game, Snake, but that was a cool game. 
So we got to experience what life was with cell phones. We got to experience what life was when it began with internet, when you first got the internet, and you had dial-up, and, you know, it would take you five minutes with, boing, 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 and you had all those noises, and it would take you five minutes to long on an hour to download a photo of something. And if someone picked up the phone while you were on the internet, you're done. So we, we've experienced no technology, the beginning of it, and we've, we've learned as it has gotten better. And so we've, we've experienced all these things that most generation wires have no idea what life is like when if you wanted to talk to your girlfriend, you had to, have the, you had to get on the phone that's attached to the wall and have a really long cord that would run back to your bedroom or the closet where you could talk for hours and no call waiting, none of that. And look, we had to memorize phone numbers. How many of you honestly know your parent's phone number? Do you on all right, Hope Olivia, do you know it? No, you don't. You, you know your dad's phone number? Okay, you know your mom's, you don't know your dad's? I don't even know mine. I mean, I know mine some, but you know what my phone number was when I was a kid? 804-332-7750. April's was 804-332-1449. My, my best friend Alex, 5985. I mean, I knew all those phone numbers. Now people are like, hey, what's, what's my mom's phone number? No idea. I go to mom. Or just tell, hey, Siri, call mom. But if someone's like, what's your mom's phone number? And I didn't have my phone, I don't know. I have no idea what her phone number is. But we've experienced all these wonderful advancements. We, you know, travel's gotten easier. When, I, when you know, first you had MapQuest, where you'd print off all the directions, and you had GPS, which was just MapQuest that talked to you. And now, of course, it's in your car, it's on your phone. And so we've experienced all these wonderful things. Now, because we've experienced all the life without it and we saw the invention and the implementation, we've, we've kind of learned all the problems. Like when computers and internet first came out, everybody got computer viruses. You know why? Because we believed that Nigerian prince. We believed, we, there's a Nigerian prince who wants to give me a million dollars and all I have to do is reply to this email and then your computer would die. And so we, we've experienced computer viruses and all that stuff. And you know, if you've ever had a really bad computer virus, it's, it's destructive. You need to click on this link that promises wonderful things. You're going to get money. This Nigerian prince is going to bless you. And all of a sudden, your computer just dies, completely gone. I mention that because the king that Israel is asking for, the king that they are asking God to give them, is, acts, ends up acting a lot like a computer virus. He promises a lot when they first accept him. He looks innocent, he looks appealing, but eventually he destroys everything. So look in your Bibles in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to start reading in verse number 4. First Samuel chapter 8 verse number 4 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old. That's a that's an encouragement statement, isn't it? Hey, Samuel, you're getting up there, dude. You're kind of old and frail, and we don't like you much. Thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. That's an important phrase right there. They want to be like every other nation. Samuel, you're getting old. We're kind of tired of this whole high priest 
telling us what to do, judging us, controlling us. We want to be like everybody else. We want a king just like everyone else. And look at verse number six. But the thing displeased Samuel. And when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto their voice, a hearken unto the voice of the people, and all the way, and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Now, it wasn't wrong for Israel to ask for a king. In Deuteronomy, God had promised them a king. God told him, Deuteronomy, one day I'm going to raise up a king who's going to protect you and provide. He's going to give you national pride. He's going to take the, the nation of Israel to, to new heights, and it's going to be great. But God said, I'm going to give you the king I want you to have when I want you to have him. They're asking for this king, not that God wants him. They're saying, God, we, we know that you promised this, but we want it now. We want, we want what you promised us. We want it today. It wasn't their request. So the problem wasn't that they were asking for a king. It was their motivation behind it. They weren't asking God to keep his word and fulfill his promise. They weren't asking out of faith. They were asking out of fear. We're scared of the other nations. They've got kings. They've got armies. They've got people to protect them. We don't. All we've got is this old man, Samuel, and he's old, he's frail, his sons don't follow the Lord. Who's he, you know, what's he going to do when the Philistines attack? What's he going to do when, when trouble comes? So Samuel, we're, we're fine with what you've done, but we need a king to take care of us. Now, they weren't saying, God, we trust you, and we're asking you to give us the king you promised on your timetable, your choice. They're saying, God, we're, we're, we're scared. We're not happy with how things are. Give us a king now. They felt they needed a king for, for two reasons. We saw in verse number seven there, they want to be like every other nation. We wanna, we're tired of being different. We're tired of being unique. We're tired, as, as God calls them, a peculiar people. Now, in, in, the, in the Hebrew, peculiar people means special, means cherished. We hear it and we're like, you know, they're so special. They're, you know, we all have some peculiar people in our lives. I have a lot of them. They're there. They're all y'all. You know, I, I claim the verse, he gathers together the outcast of Israel. That's us. We're the outcast. Uh, but that's fine. Uh, but, you know, they, they, they wanted a king for to be like other nations. But then look at, jump down real quick to, to chapter 8, verse 20. Here's another reason he wanted the king, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted a king for, for national pride. They wanted a king for identity, and they wanted a king for security. These were all things God had given them. These were all things God was currently providing for them but they didn't feel like he was taking care of them all they they all they had instead of being like other nations and having a king and an army all they had were promises from an invisible god god considered what they were asking for as a rejection of him they're supposed to be different they're supposed to be set apart and instead of trusting that god would fight for them 
instead of trusting that God would provide for them, instead of trusting that God would be their identity, they're saying, God, we, we know you've said you're going to do it, but we don't believe you, so we want a king to do what you are not or will not do. Their relationship with God was supposed to be their source of identity, was supposed to be where they got their security, was supposed to be where they had their pride. Look at verse number 8 again of chapter 8. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. God's, he's comforting Samuel because, again, Samuel's mad. And he's not mad because they're like, well, Samuel, we're tired of you. We want someone else to be in charge. He understands this is a rejection of God. This is a, a slap in the face of their heavenly father. And so God says, look, Samuel, they're not, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And they've been doing it ever since I brought them out of Egypt. Ever since I made them a nation, all they've done is reject me. Moses, of course, he goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. And remember, when he goes up on Mount Sinai... Israel has just seen 10 plagues be put on Egypt, and they didn't suffer from any of them. They didn't get the fleas. They didn't get the frogs. Their water didn't turn to blood. Their firstborn children weren't killed by the death angel. They leave Egypt slaves but burdened down with the wealth of Egypt. They go to the Red Sea. They see God literally part the Red Sea where they walk across on dry ground. They turn around and see God destroy the armies of Pharaoh. They see God give them water from a rock in the middle of the desert to provide for them. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to talk to God and get the law of God, and he takes too long. So they go to Aaron and say, make us a golden calf, and that'll be our God. We'll say that golden calf is what delivered us. Immediately rejects God. They're water, wandering through the wilderness, and God, while they're wandering through the desert, he's giving them food every day. He's giving them water every day. He is taking them to a place that he has promised is flowing with milk and honey. And they get to the point where they say, God's going to keep taking care of us. We're tired of this manna. We want to go back to Egypt and be slaves because at least in Egypt we had onions and leeks and garlic. Look, and I love garlic and onions as much as the next guy, but I don't want to be a slave to get it. I don't want to be enslaved. And they, they say, we were better as slaves with Pharaoh oppressing us than we are with God providing for us. After all that, they saw, after all they saw God do, they didn't trust him. They didn't believe that he was enough. So they wanted a king to fight their battles. Now look, by this time in the Bible, they've come into the promised land. They've fought all the enemies, and they won every single time. They lost once when they didn't trust God or they stole some stuff. But other than that, God's, I mean, they go to Ai, the biggest city in the world at that time, the most fortified city in the world at that time. They are a piddly little army, and God says, just walk around it a bunch of times, blow your trumpets, and you'll be victorious. And they do, and they know that story. They saw God do that, and they still like, I don't know if God's strong enough to fight these battles for us. He's won every battle they fought. But like, we need a king. By, in this chapter, in chapter 4 of Second First uh, Samuel, the ark has been captured, like Samuel said it would be. The Philistines come in, 
Samuel's, uh, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, take the ark out thinking, we'll take the ark and that'll scare them and God will be victorious. And God's like, no, y'all have been, so y'all have sinned against me so much and now you're just, you're using me as a parlor trick. So the Philistines capture the ark. God returned the ark to Israel using a, a cart and two cows. No army. You know how he did it? So it's kind of funny how he did it. The Philistines take the, the ark to their capital. They put, a, put him in the temple uh, with Dagon. The next day they come out and Dagon's fallen down. And they're like, oh, well, that's weird. Strong breeze must have come through. So they put Dagon back up. Come back the next day, Dagon's fallen down and his nose is broken off. So they put him back up, super glue his nose back on. Next day, Dagon's down his nose, his head, and his hands are broken down. They're like, maybe there's something to this. Maybe something's happening, but they ignore it. And you know what God does then? God gives every single one of the people in that city hemorrhoids. I don't fight fair. He gives them get rid of this ark. So they send it to another Philistine city. Same thing happens. Everybody breaks out with hemorrhoids. Finally, they say, you know what? Let's give it back to Israel. It's not worth it. We're running out of the donuts we need. So go ahead and send it back to Israel. So they put it on a cart, two cows. So God defeated the Philistines with hemorrhoids to give the ark back to Israel. They didn't need an army. They didn't need a king. God has always fought for them. Now, they're not trusting him. When you have a God that fights for you like that, you don't need a human king to do it for you. They have an army. One day, God will give them a king, and they should trust him, but they're not. Now, here's the thing. Israel never wanted to completely walk away from God. They just said, God, you're, you're good. God is so good, but he's not enough. God is great, but a king would be better. God is powerful, but a king would help him when we needed him to. So they didn't, they didn't just walk away from God. They felt they needed something else added to him. So here's what we, we learn here. First point. We replace God by adding to him. We replace God by adding to That's all Israel's doing. They're not saying, God, we want to get rid of you. God, we're tired of you. God, you're not. They're saying, God, you're doing a great job, but a king would help you out a whole lot more. God, you've been great, but we need a king to kind of take up the slack that you're doing in our lives. So they were adding to God. Where have we done that in our lives? Where have you said, man, God's good, but he's just not enough. I need more. I need something else. You know, one of the biggest problems with the prosperity gospel is it assumes that life cannot be good, cannot be joyful, cannot be fulfilling unless you're prosperous in every area of your life. Unless you're running around in your, your, your coin bank like Scrooge McDuck. Life can't be happy. It is built on the assumption that a good life is abundance of stuff. And that's what Israel thought. God's people are supposed to be different. We are supposed to know God's all we need. Everything else, just bonus. You don't need a great job. Now, I know you're thinking, yeah, I do. i got to pay my bills. I understand that. But as a child, all we really need is God. He'll take care of us. He'll provide. Now, I'm not saying 
go quit your job and say, preacher said all I needed was God, so I'm going to quit my job and sit at home and God's enough. No, God gave you strength to work a job. Do it. Don't be stupid. But it's not how much money you make. It's how much God you have. God's presence is enough. God's promises make us more secure than any money or any worldly prominence could. I heard one uh, false prophet, and I'm going to call him that uh, blatantly out, was one fake preacher. He was trying to get people to give to his ministry, not his, him. And he, he was encouraging them to go into credit card debt to do it. And he said, if you have $3,000 left on your credit card, give 1500 to our ministries, and you'll be amazed at what God's going to do. People around you will be amazed when they see you driving a brand new BMW with a smile on your face. That's, that's, that's false teaching. That's manipulative. That's dangerous because that assumes you're only going to be happy if you're driving a brand new BMW. I don't want a BMW. I don't, you know, my, my dream car, 1967 Ford Mustang. Whew, you give me one of them puppies, I'll be happy. But you know what I'll also be happy with? A, a, a 19 whatever, whatever. As long as it gets me from point A to point B without leaving me on the side of the road, I'm fine with it. See, joy isn't found in stuff, it's found in God. See, we are supposed to be, the most dangerous assumption you could have is the most dangerous thing you can assume is that you're only happy driving a new car. We are supposed to be different. You know, don't amaze your neighbors by your big house and your fancy car. Amaze your neighbors that, you know what, you're just, you're, you're, you're getting by, you're, you got a, a, a modest mortgage, you got a modest car, but you know what, you're happy no matter what. You're joyful no matter what. Now, there's nothing wrong with being blessed. But God blesses us so we can use what he gives us for his kingdom. When we depend on those things to feel significant, those blessings to feel secure, we become like Israel. James chapter 4 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your passions. You adulterers and adulteresses, do not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God. Who for therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. A lot of theologians call John uh, James 4, 3 and 4, it, they say it's, it's praying like an adulterer. You know, he, they say sometimes you, you don't have stuff because you don't ask for it. Now, look, I'm guilty of this a lot of times where I, I have not because I don't ask. Because I, I sometimes I think, oh, God, yeah, I, you know, yeah, the car's broken and I, and I need the car fixed, but I, I can do that. You don't need to get your hands greasy. God, I'll take care of that. And, you know, or God, you know, I know the, this is messing up and, you know, but Lord, I got myself in this mess and I'll, I'll get myself, you know, I know you're a tear, but, you know, God, you don't, you know, you know, I'm like, I'm thinking, God, you got more things to worry about than my, what I've done stupid that I can fix myself. So all the time, I have not because I ask not. But sometimes we don't have because we ask like an adulterer. Adultery is one spouse finding fulfillment in someone other than their spouse. Spiritual adultery is finding happiness, security, and fulfillment in things other than God. Praying like an adulterer is demanding something in addition to God to give you peace and security. God, you're great. Well, Lord, I need blank to be happy. God, I need a raise to be happy. Lord, I need, I need a, a better spouse 
to be happy. Or here's when I prayed, God, I need better kids to be happy. Sometimes I feel like George Bailey. You know, why do we have to have all these kids? You know, you know I was talking in Sunday school. I love my kids. Love them unconditionally. Don't like them. But I love them. Love them like crazy. Don't like them a whole lot uh, sometimes. But, you know, it's like, God, I need this to be happy. I need this to be secure, to be, to, to be fulfilled. We're supposed to find that in God alone. Here, that is why the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. Because Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know what that literally translates to? God, you're my father. That's all I need. I don't need anything else. I don't need a kingdom. I don't need a crown. I don't need wealth and prosperity. God, if I've got you, I've got all I need. That's why he was called a man after God's own heart. We replace God by adding to him. Second thing we notice in this passage, we reject God by adding to him. God considered Israel's demand for a king as a rejection of him. Look what he says, starting in chapter, in chapter 8, verse number 9. Now, therefore, hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. So here's what God tells Samuel, give them what they're asking for, but, you know, a warning label on it. Kind of like a terms and conditions. You ever read the terms and conditions of anything you ever buy? No. Like every time you update your phone, it's like, read the terms and conditions. Who has ever read the terms and conditions of anything? Nobody. Uh, that's a, I heard a story. It's not in my notes, but it just there was a, a company back in the, the early 2000s. They, uh, they did a, it was a little a game, uh, a computer game. And in their terms and conditions, they had put in there that if someone, that they gave a specific thing, like if you send a letter saying this particular thing to this address, we will give you $5,000. To prove no one read the terms and conditions, one guy did it. One guy read the terms and conditions to claim that $5,000. But no one ever reads them. So God's like, hey, give them what they're going to get, what they're, what they're asking for, but give them some warnings. And look at the warnings, starting in verse 10. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked, him, asked of him a king and said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. <clears throat> he will take your sons and appoint them for himself. For his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. He will appoint him captains over thousands, and captains over fifties, and will set them to to ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries, and to be cooks, and to be bakers. And he will take your fields, and your vineyards, and your oliveyards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed, and of your vineyards, and give them to his officers, and to his servants. And he will take your men servants, and your maid servants, and your goodliest young men, and your asses, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep, and ye shall be his servants. And you shall cry out in that day, because of your king which you shall which ye shall have chosen you and the lord will not hear you in that day that's a strong warning see says look you can have a king but it can take your sons he's gonna make him work in his fields he's gonna make him lead his armies he's gonna send them to the battle to die not for you but for him he's gonna take your daughters he's gonna take your your livestock He's going to take your, your field. He's going to take everything from you. 
He won't make you secure. He's going to demand everything from you and give you nothing. And when you realize your mistake and you cry out to God, God's going to say, I told you so. You asked for this. I'm not going to hear you. Now, God does hear that when they cry out, that's a different thing. But he's not going to make them secure. And the man they chose, Saul, he's impressive. Bible says, we're going to see next week, he's heads and shoulders above everybody else. Bible says he's, he's beautiful to look at. And it's amazing. When you look at how it describes Samuel, Samuel's, or Saul is big and tall and handsome and rugged. It's kind of like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, just like a man's man. And then you get to David, and David calls him ruddy. Literally, he's like, David's this red-headed, freckled-faced, ugly kid. Got snot running down his nose. He's nothing to look at. But Saul, man, Saul's impressive. He looks the part, and eventually, he takes everything from him. They chose him to defeat the Philistines, but he ends up dying in battle to the Philistines. He loses that battle, and he's killed by them, and they invade. They wanted a king to protect them from the Philistines, and he couldn't do what he promised. Saul promised a lot, but delivered little. That's what happens when we try to add to God. Which brings us to the third point, number three. Every king but God enslaves. Every one of us has a king we serve. Maybe marriage, maybe success, maybe family, maybe wealth. Whatever your king is, your king is always going to disappoint you. If your king is success in your career, what are you going to do when you're 60 and 70 and you can't succeed as quickly as you did when you were 20 and 30? Suddenly your king has disappointed you. It disappoints every time. There was a famous musician, classical musician, so no one of y'all are going to know him, uh, Igor Stravinsky. Some of you do. You generation and millennials and wires, you're not going to know who he is. Igor Stravinsky, classical musician, famous. He said, getting famous is exhilarating. Staying famous is a miserable combination of boredom and terror. Studies show that people who accomplish incredible things in whatever field they're in always end up wanting more. You know, Charles Darwin probably made the arguably the largest contribution to science in a millennium. Now, look, I don't agree with him about evolution. I'm not saying he's a great guy. He had some good points in other issues, but regardless of what we think of him or his, his theory of evolution, he changed the face of science. But he died miserable, wanted to accomplish more. Because he'd gone from the pinnacle of the scientific community to people like, well, what's Charles done now? Yeah, he came up with that great evolutionary plan, but what have you done lately? He died miserable because he wasn't on top. Serving success always enslaves. It takes more than ever promises. And all earthly kings are that way. Serving money enslaves. Getting more money does not bring joy. John D. Rockefeller famously said after making billions and billions of dollars on his deathbed, he was asked, how much money is enough money? And he famously said, one more dollar. I've got all the money in the world. I just need one more dollar. If that's what your goal is, you're never going to be happy. Jewish philosopher, 
Arthur Schnauenbauer said, wealth and fame are like seawater. The more we drink of them, the thirstier we become. All kings take and leave you wanting more. All kings leave you unfulfilled and unsatisfied and will enslave you. Look at verse number 18. And you shall cry out in that day because your king, which you shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go you, every man, to his own city. You know, sometimes the only way God can break the enslavement of an idol is to give it to you. The Bible says in Psalms, God gave them the desire of their heart and sent leanness to their soul. In the next chapter, God gives them a king. He's impressive. He's tall. He's a great warrior. One of the saddest sentences or statements in the entire book of 1 Samuel says, all of Israel's hearts went toward Saul. He gave them great hope, but he all ended up disappointing them. He takes, 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 just like Samuel said. He serves himself to the point where he lies, he betrays, and he extorts the people for his own benefit. He prioritizes the protection of his position over the interests of the people. He takes and takes and takes and leaves Israel broken. And God warned him in verse 18, you're going to realize your mistake, you're going to cry out, and I'm not going to listen. Now, it was, a, it was a true statement. Israel had some hard lessons to learn through Saul. He leaves him broken, defeated, and disappointed. But God is still merciful. He does hear them eventually. He does deliver them. He does send them the king that they need. God was created in them a desire for a better king, a king after his own heart. But to show them the king that they really needed, he had to give them the king they wanted to realize how badly, how badly they messed up. Now, David would be the symbol of that king, but he wouldn't be the ultimate fulfillment of it. David was just a shadow of Jesus. Jesus is the king that God has wanted to give us all along. He's a king completely unlike Saul. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and give his life a, a, a ransom for many. He didn't come to make others lay down their lives for him. He came to lay down his life for us. He didn't come to take, but he came to give to us eternal life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The Jewish people rejected Jesus as king. When Saul faced rejection, he killed those who rejected him. When Jesus faced rejection, he absorbed the wrath of their sin for them. He loved them anyway. He hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He bore their rejection in his body, willingly went to the cross, absorbed the wrath for their sin and their shame. No king has ever done that. He took my sin and sorrow, and he made them his very own. 
He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. I wounded Jesus, but by his wounds, I am healed. Tim Keller says this, says, Jesus is the only king that if you obtain him, will satisfy you, and whom, if you fail him, will forgive you. Other kings promise, if you obey me, I'll give you happiness, but if you fail me, you'll be miserable. Jesus is the only king that satisfies, and if you fail him, will still forgive you. Heard a story one time, I want to close with this story. Heard it a while ago, and I heard it in a sermon, as a sermon illustration, so I can pretty much guarantee you it is not true, but it's a good story. Back in the 10th century, there was a Viking king off the uh, coast of the Faroe Islands up near Iceland. Uh, he was apparently a loving and generous king. He was merciful to his people. He loved his people and provided for his people. But one day he came out and he gathered all his, his subjects together and he, he told them, someone has been stealing from the treasury. I, I will forgive whoever did it, and I will help anyone that has a need. If you have a need, don't steal to take care of it. Come to me. I'll help you. I'll give you whatever you need. I'll provide for you. Just stop stealing from the treasury. A week later, he came out, and money was still being stolen. And he said, look, I, I told if you, if you come to me, I'll help you. Now, I hate to do this, but if the person continues to steal and we catch you stealing, you're going to have to receive 10 lashes. But if, if you come to me before we catch you and confess, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll forgive you, I'll help you, I'll do whatever I can. Just please, stop stealing. A week later, money's still being stolen, so he comes out heartbroken and says, look, I don't know what to do. I've I, I told you, I'll, I'll help you. I'll take care of you. I'll do whatever you need. But you are hurting the government. You are stealing from all the people. I'm going to have to increase the lashes to, to 20 lashes if you're caught. So please, just stop stealing. A week later, was still being stolen. So he came out heartbroken again and said, look, do this. But whoever is doing it, if we catch you, and we are going to catch you, it's 40 lashes. Please just stop. Just come to me. I'll help you. A couple days later, the thief was caught. Turned out it was the king's brother. The people were anxious what was going to happen. He's a, he's a just king. This crime deserved this punishment. But he's a merciful king. He's a loving king. Surely he won't do this to his own brother. Well, the king set the, the day and had his brother taken to be tied to a post and lashed 40 times. But before the, the guy with the whip could start lashing him, he said, hold on a second. And he goes up to his brother and looked his brother in the eye and said, I just want you to know, I love you no matter what. And then he hugged his brother and told the punisher to start the lashes. Punisher said, I can't, I'll, I'll hit you. King said, I don't care. Do your best to hit him, but I'm not moving. And the king took all the lashes for his brother. That's a great story. That's how I know it's not true. Also heard it in a sermon, but it's a great story. That's the type of king that Jesus is. That's the type of king that we need. A king that will love us no matter what, 
will fight for us no matter what, will provide for us no matter what, and will love us no matter what, and say, you deserve the punishment that's coming to you, but I'll take it for you. And that's what he did. He took the wrath of God for us. He bled in our place. He died in our place. He was buried and went to hell in our place and rose again three days later to reconcile us and redeem us to God the Father. Jesus is the king we're all looking for. He is faithful. He is always there for us, and he will always fight for us. That's why David said, the Lord's my shepherd. God's my king. I don't need anything else. Can we say that? Can we honestly say, God, you're all I need. No matter what I face, no matter what I go through, if I've got you, I've got everything. Pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.